Welcome to the Apple of Truth. I'm Lena. And I'm Vero. And since we somehow turned into a Neil Gaiman podcast, What? we're covering one of his movies today. It's Stardust, a movie Ooh. dearly beloved by me, despite... Or maybe because... Never having read the book. <gasps> I have read the book, but I will not be making any references to that today because obviously there will be another, or more than one, episodes where we talk just about the book. As if we could ever just talk about a single medium. <laughs> Long-time listeners might recognize some of our regular segments. There will be a bonus material with our old devil segments Ooh. for the wonderful believers over at our Patreon. So if you're not a believer, go, go now, go. Believe in us, we need it. And believe to start us off, believe I will give us a ridiculous ridiculously long facts and fun segment and guess what ridiculously long is the entire episode because there's so much to say lies lies i'm gonna go take a nap okay bye yeah so writer and director matthew vaughn i should say co-writer and director matthew vaughn is a name that many of you should have come across he produced a shit ton of movies that many of you might know He is involved in the Kingsman series, in Kick-Ass. He produced Snatch. He produced Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels. But for me, mostly relevant, he is director and co-writer for Stardust and for X-Men First Class. Oh. Yeah. So those were the most relevant ones for me. And of course, Kick-Ass, because Kick-Ass was amazing. If you have not watched Kick-Ass, I highly recommend it. To me, Kingsman. Because and despite Nicolas Cage. <laughs> because and despite Nicolas Cage should be the name of Nicolas Cage's biography. Actually, yes. Very good point. <laughs> That is our director. We're going to be talking about him quite a bit in this. But how did this come to be? Let's get into it. Miramax originally had the movie rights and they let those rights expire. And after that, Neil Gaiman felt uncomfortable granting the rights to just anyone. After turning down numerous directors and young actresses who wanted it as a starring vehicle, Gaiman finally granted Matthew Vaughn the rights for free. Gaiman trusted Vaughn both as a friend and as someone who stuck to his word, I quote, something Gaiman considers a rarity in Hollywood. Especially since the movie rights originally expired. Like, what the fuck, Miramax? What are you doing? Yeah, but thank fuck it went this way. Yes. Matthew Vaughn had great difficulty shooting the scenes at the inn where Lamia entices Yvain, Tristan and Primus because there were just very few days when more than one cast member was actually available for filming. Oh He God. used a lot of stand-ins and the closer shots to give the impression that all the cast members were present. And I tried to pay attention to this this time around. I did not notice it. So wow. he did a really, really great job with this. Wow. Robert De Niro accepted the role of Shakespeare due to his regret at turning down the role of Barbosa in Pirates of the Caribbean. I think that Shakespeare is much better character and much yes. more fun. Yes. And much more iconic. Like, fuck Barbosa. Who the fuck is that? I mean, I know no. who he is. Shut yeah, up. But... I was about to say, also a fucking amazing actor. But yeah. I mean, obviously, but yeah. Shakespeare, I mean, much more iconic. This way he didn't have all the CGI in his face. So, yay. 
When Matthew Vaughan pitched this movie to executives at Paramount Pictures, the studios wanted a more recognizable name, like Orlando Bloom, to play Tristan. It was only after Vaughan had cast Robert De Niro, Michelle Pfeiffer and Claire Danes that the Paramount people agreed to let Vaughan cast Charlie Cox as Tristan. Such a good shout though. Like, Charlie Cox yeah. is absolutely perfect for the role. Yeah, and because he was so unknown, you believe in the beginning that he is this dorky and everything. Yeah. So, yeah, it's beautifully done. Yeah. After initial conversations between Neil Gaiman and Matthew Vaughn about how to make this movie, Gaiman found that Vaughn was most comfortable with all the action sequences and the adventure bits, but he needed a bit of help with the romance side of the story. Aww. To complement Vaughn's style and better capture all the aspects of the book, Gaiman introduced him to co-writer Jane Goldman, and those two hit it off and wrote the screenplay. And the two of them continue to work together a lot on Kick-Ass, Kingsman, The Golden Circle, X-Men, First Class. They co-wrote all those screenplays as well. And Matthew directed all of those and Jane was a producer on the first two. So once again, gay men bringing the right people together, creating more beautiful shit. It's just, really, the dude just is amazing when it comes to getting people together. Yes. Non-surprising fact, much of Ferdy's dialogue was ad-libbed by Ricky Gervais. Like the joke when he tells Lamia he can get her a two-faced dog as a guard dog that can watch both the front and the back. That was ad-libbed. And yeah. most of his stuff is ad-libbed. Yeah, whatever, Michelle I don't Pfeiffer care. was Matthew Warren's only choice for the role of the Witch Queen. He had been a diehard fan of hers since seeing her in Greece too in 1982. <laughs> and I remember wow. you saying seeing her in that as your first movie of her as well. I think so, so yeah. It's a, it's a very funny coincidence to me. Yeah, that is actually. I mean, unfortunately, the movie is just so forgettable. Yeah, but, but that's yeah, not her I fault. saw it as a kid, yeah. Yeah. Captain Shakespeare's flying boat is called Cuspertine, named after Matthew Warren's two children, Cuspar and Clementine. I wrote down the name in my notes because I was going to ask you if you know why. I didn't Google it on purpose. There you go. Whenever Primus is seen traveling on his quest for the stone, he is alone. Primus, Latin, first, huh? Whenever Septimus is seen on his quest, he is accompanied by six servants, making a total of seven in his group. Septimus, Latin for seven. I'm actually complaining about this later because we have a script error on this. Because okay. he has six people following him, following him to the beach, and then he stabs one and he still has six people following him. So how does that work? It's called Bernard. Yes. Mm -hmm. Thank you. There you go. <laughs> no, 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 no. Because at the beach, Bernard isn't there. No, 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 no. No, Bernard isn't there. But we only see him epic journey to the inn afterwards. So that's one short scene. And I'm not 100% sure if there's still six riders with him in that small bit. At the inn, he has six riders next to their horses when he tells them, like, go check for it if he has it. And then Bernard pops out his head. Well, so... do we know that he has six riders or six horses there? Six people. I counted the humans. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, error, error. Then I have one fact for you because I don't know. Uh-huh. Septimus's musical theme is written in 7-8th time. Which one is his musical theme? I don't because know shit like that. I, fe I feel like he doesn't have his own. There's the there's a ta da da ta ta, which is ta ta ta. Yeah, that would be yeah. Music but is the, your stuff. But the ta da da ta ta ta. 
that's that's the royal theme where every single time one of them thinks that they're gonna they're about to become the king, they get the For when the next time you watch this movie, pay attention if any of those music is in seven eighths. Oh yeah, this seems to be if you Yes, that's in seventh eight. Well then this is probably meant for him because he is Septimus. Anna Hathaway, Scarlett Johansson, Sarah Michelle Geller, and Jessica Alba all turned down the role of Yvain. <laughs> wow. Well, right? jokes on them, because that was... I mean, they all went on to have amazing careers, so not really on that, but still, it's... But that's not really, like, necessarily, like, I. it's just such a great role, and Yvain is so sassy, and she has her own yeah. agenda, which is something, especially in, like, the early 2000s, still was not a huge thing to have a female main character to have their own agenda and their own mind. I mean, Sarah Michelle Michelle Gellar kind of paved the way with her main role, so yeah. Yeah, but you know, like, you know what I mean? Like, it wasn't wasn't a normal occurrence. It's like, these days, it's still not as many as we would like. Like, women are still used very often as a device, as a plot device. I mean, Yvain is a plot device. Yes, but... She We're gonna talk is about this. her own person, which very often yeah, at her don't really. Okay, we'll talk about it. Whatever. So then they talk about traveling by candlelight and they talk about a Babylon candle. And that is actually Babbling from a candle? children. Exactly. That is actually from a children's rhyme from the 19th century. There's like a main lyric and then there's a Scottish version. We're going to give you both <laughs> and please be delighted at my very, very terrible Scottish attempt. So the accepted modern lyrics are How many miles to Babylon? Three score miles and ten. Can I get there by candlelight? Yes, and back again. If your heels are nimble and your toes are light, you may get there by candlelight. And a slightly longer version is the Scottish one. King and Queen of Cantalon, how many miles to Babylon? Eight and eight and other eight. Will I get there by candlelight? If your horse be good and your spurs be bright, how many man have ye? May your may nor your door come and see. I have no idea what a D-A-U-R is. D-A-U-R. Uh, Daur. Yeah, I do not know what a Daur is. So, menor ya Daur, come and see. Yeah, so... Yeah, I was ex- kind of expecting you um, to to say it in a Scottish accent. <laughs> this is the closest I can get. Uh- <laughs> uh, it is uh, the meaning of Daur. Uh, Daur is a Scottish variant of dare. Uh-huh. Okay, whatever. So this is the <laughs> Scottish version and I linked the poem and the page of it. And last, but definitely not least, at the very end of the credits, you can hear the pirates cheer once more. And that concludes the facts and funs. It is one and a half pages in my notes. That is the longest facts and funs I have ever had. And I have put so much shit into my normal notes because this was three pages at the beginning. Okay, well, since we managed to get through all of these funs and facts. <laughs> these fans! Ah! <laughs> Lol. We can get straight into the movie. What? There is no previously on? Previously on Stardust. <laughs> That's the first scene. That's the previously on. 
Basically, the, the oh entire the entire Ben storyline when he's still the first Ben Barnes. Seven minutes are the previously on. Yeah. So do take the lead, please, because this is your segment. Oh. Ah, previously on Stardust, we meet a young Dunstan played by Benjamin Thomas Barnes. He is trying to get through a wall. Then he sleeps with a total stranger. Goes back and gets a baby. <laughs> Nine months later, he becomes the best father in the world. And you we forgot. never see Ben Barnes again. You forgot that he was also a very curious young boy who <laughs> wrote very inquisitive fan mail to scientists. So it was actually him. Yes. Okay. Well, that's, I wasn't that's how sure. I understood it. Well, that's how I understood it as well. But like, I don't feel like we've seen the signature properly. So... Well, no, no, like, no, the signature we, we see, see is the scientist. Yeah, yeah, we don't actually see the letter written by the child or the boy. No, no, so. no, 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 no. So... We start this movie and it is very gaming to go, what if this usually inanimate object, thing, whatever, was alive? Like that is very, very gaming. And I would not be me if I hadn't tried, but I could not find any philosopher who actually supposed the question our wonderful narrator, spoken by Ian McAllen, gives us Hold with the, are we human because we gaze at the stars or, go, do, or do we gaze at the stars because we are human? Which I still think is a completely ridiculous question. And so no surprise, there is no actual philosopher who pondered that. I have also tried to find it. Uh, the only <laughs> outcome that I found is that Neil Gaiman is calling himself a philosopher because it's him His, saying yes. that. But then this is very much the chicken and an egg kind of a question. Like, what was first? Are we <laughs> using our brains to look at the stars because we're humans or are we humans because we're using our brains, therefore looking at the stars, you know? Look at kind you of a, going deep. I know, thank you. But the real question, as Ian McKellen so accurately puts, is do the stars gaze back? That's a question that may have been pondered by a philosopher in the history once or twice. Or imaginative children. And so thank you, IMDb, for taking over my freeze framework for this scene. Because IMDb has the entire letter that the Lovely. scientist writes. So I didn't have to freeze frame myself through it. I did still freeze frame and make sure that IMDb got it right. They <laughs> did. The letter reads, Dear Sir, thank you for your inquiry concerning the existence of another world beyond the wall surrounding your village. In our opinion, the hypothetical existence of such a gateway would run contrary to all known laws of science. Subsequently, in the opinion of my esteemed colleagues and myself, the idea may be safely dismissed as merely colorful rural folklore. I thank you again for your enquiry, and I hope that our conclusion will enable you to proceed with your life. Yours faithfully. He then signs it with Bimbo Heart. And if you really want to get frustrated, go on IMDb, check the cameo section on the IMDb page, and then go on to a spiral. Because there is so much random shit on there, and there is no specific answer. I went down a Reddit <laughs> friend and various Twitter threads, and nobody had the actual answer. Just mm. claims. It was maddening. Mm-hmm. Especially yes. to someone like you, I can imagine. Yes. Rawr. So, fuck you, bimbo heart. Bimbo heart. <laughs> when we watch this... So, uh, dear listeners, we live watch this. And when we watched this, I was like, this seems so familiar. This seems so familiar. I'm sure I have seen this room before. Yes, oh, yeah. I have. 
Yes, I have. And I couldn't let it go. So the location this is being filmed in is the Stowe School in Buckingham. And this particular room has been used in The Avengers. No, not Marvel's The Avengers, but the one from 1998 with Sean Connery, Yuma Furman and Ralph Fiennes. And I have seen this movie. I know this movie. And this is where I know this fucking room from. I have linked my source where you can see the pictures from the Avengers movie. It's basically a British spy movie. And then you see why it is so easy to instantly recognize this room. Apparently, the Stowe School is Matthew Vaughn's old school. He went to fucking school there. And this is why this is the location that he used. That's incredible. Is that the only thing that they shot there besides uh, yeah, Stardust? Yeah. Okay. Uh, no, no, no the, 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 this room is used in a shit ton of other things. Yeah. I linked my sources. Um, I also linked another source for all the Stardust filming locations. But we're going to be talking about that again later. Okay. Because not everything. Everything is shot in England and Scotland. There is one okay. other location. Stop saying things like that and then not telling me what the location is. I'm going to mention it when we're there. Yeah, I know. So you, should, you didn't... Ah, whatever. Let's finally get through the fucking wall. So, Dunstan clearly is not satisfied with the scientist's reply. And therefore, it actually makes sense to me because I was kind of confused before I realized that... Before I connected the letter and everything. Why would Why? you go there? Why yeah. does he want to go through there? Is it like, he, does he try to take a shortcut through there? Or is he actually curious what's behind the wall? Or what is does the he, reasoning? Does he what's know the, it's there? Does he expect yeah. it's there? Is he skeptical it's there? Like, why? But now that yeah, it's clear... Yeah, what's the motivation? But he's now the he, kid who wrote the letter. Yes. He now wants to figure it out himself. My main complaint is, why did nobody fix the fucking hole? Because very obviously, the guard later on does not have any issue stepping on the bad side of the wall. Mm -hmm. So... That tells me they could have fixed the wall. And I'm very curious as to why. I feel like you can also climb the wall because the wall is tiny. It's not like a huge wall. So, you know, why bother? Yeah, but they only have to guard at the hole. So yeah. it makes me wonder, maybe you can't get over the wall on any other place because it's the wall. So I'm very curious as to why the hole is... A, where did the hole come from? And yeah. B, why did no one ever fix it? So I curious. smell a prequel. I smell a prequel. So if we ever meet Neil Gaiman and we Put run it on the list. all the good omen questions, then I would actually like to ask this. Yes, it's a great okay. question. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Now, Dunstan manages to get through because obviously Wait, he's he... Duncan, not Dunstan. I'm sorry. He's Duncan. Dunstan. Why? I have Dunstan and Duncan written down. He's. I'm pretty sure he's Dunstan. I have written down Dunstan everywhere. You're right. Where, where does Duncan from come? Oh my I don't God. know. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's fine. So Dunstan obviously doesn't want to stay where he is because he's a curious young man and he runs through and this is the trick that only works once as we have will no, find out later. <laughs> We get him actually getting to the other side. Oh my god, this is the first time I fully embrace the score of this movie because it's just so epic and beautiful and good and it puts me straight into the middle of it and I fucking love the it. The soundtrack is amazing. Like seriously, the composed so much music for this movie fits all of the scenes so well. Like Incredible. I never feel it's overpowering, but when it is intense, it always is so with purpose. Yes, so really, yeah. It kind of gives you like a vibe of a musical because you have like recurring themes then that play within yeah, a good point. Yeah. it as well. So 
It's like oh, the music Stardust is a musical. That would be amazing. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I kind of want that. We should write it and then perform it. Oh my god. Let's do that. Yeah, but if you we know, ever like, run it, out of things to do, maybe. It feels like we could consider the music an extra character. Yes, you know, absolutely. In this movie, yes. It moves the plot along. It gives us, you know, situational context. humor as well. There is a lot of context. It's great. Dunstan finally makes it to the village, and I have mentioned it before, but I don't know if I mentioned it on this podcast but Ben Barnes have talked about the scene and shooting this scene because this was his first job first proper job and he was brought to this market and he was you know it was beautiful and, and so many weird things so he just started walking walking around and trying to look at things and just be amazed by everything he sees and the director literally had to like drug him away say do not do that don't do that now do it on save camera it. save yep. it for save it for the actual shoot because this is everything you're doing right now I want to see on screen and obviously that's that's what they've done so a lot of the curiosity that you can see in young the Dunstan, wonder the wonder the surprises it's all real and i think that's beautiful Aww. i love it when movies help the newer actors to yeah. like perform more authentically by giving them like a level of this because like dude if it's your first actual proper role it might not be that easy and so to mm. have the, the help of like this is actually how i'm feeling right now so it's easier for me to emote it externally I love that. Yeah. I mean, and this is something actually that Ben has taken to a lot of his forward work where he tends to use kind of external elements like this to get into the role. This must have left the mark on a positive <laughs> yeah. way, right? Absolutely. Like having a positive work environment and learning good lessons on your first job is probably something that like really sticks with you for a while. So Speaking, nice. <laughs> speaking of Ben, he looks Ugh. so fucking young. Speaking of positive work environments, this is not one. <laughs> <laughs> he looks like he's like in his, he's like 15 or something. Baby, baby. Yeah. They're actually all not that far apart age-wise. So it's very, yeah. very hilarious on a certain level. I can't believe it took me until this viewing to realize that Cell is going to the pub where everything ends. Because she is going to the Slaughtered Prince for a pint. Oh. And that is the pub where we yeah. end. Yeah. I never yeah. clocked that. Me neither. I just, you just told me that now. <laughs> it's mind-blowing to me how many fucking details I only just now noticed on this viewing. I have watched this movie way too many times. Not as many as you, but still way too many. And it's just like, really? It took me until now? Like, <laughs> wow. <laughs> I love it so much. And Dunstan looks a little scared of Una at first. Yeah, I mean, wouldn't you? She's very she's, forward. She's very forward, a little intimidating, very beautiful. And I don't think that he has the experience, like, or any experience at all, the way he... He, he seems very awkward in this situation. So she kind of goes for it and... Yeah, like, so this is one of the few, very few scenes. I think this and one other scene are the only scenes that did not age well for me. Mm. And this is because this is very creepy. Mm -hmm. Especially so depending on the motivation of Una. Mm -hmm. Why is she doing this? Because if she is doing this with the intent of creating a male heir, then it's really, really yucky. And if she's doing it just for fun because she is a slave and she can't escape, it becomes a little bit less yucky, but it's still yucky because Dunstan to me reads very much as a virgin who has fucking no idea what the fuck is happening. Yeah. So yeah. that is, but still, I get that we're supposed to see this as wondrous and 
Dunstan going forth into a magical world and also experiencing the magic of sexual awakening. Yeah. And true love. I mean, there's love, of course. It does give a new meaning to the phrase stealing a kiss. <laughs> but no, also the whole situation is... <sighs> You yeah. know, I the way I read this is she, yes, wants an heir, but also she's not just trying to seduce anybody on the street. He clearly is giving off a vibe of a good person. And she's like, probably, yeah. I would like somebody like this who is completely unaware of his surroundings and this world to be the father of my child that will possibly become the heir to the throne, yeah. which is creepy. It is. It's. It doesn't make it much better. But also, it is some sort of a compliment that Una is choosing Dunstan at this point. Yeah. She doesn't have that many options, to be fair. Yeah. yeah. She gets really lucky, to be fair. Yeah. But what I'm wondering is, like, the whole arrangement between Sal and Una. The movie never really goes into detail here. Because from mm. what we can tell, the only thing that Una can't do is take off the chain. Everything else she can do. Sal is, of course, able to transform her into a bird and back to a human and yada yada. But... There is no restriction placed on the actions and words that Una yeah. can use. Yeah. Because I was very surprised that Cell actually leaves her in charge of the store, so to say. Because if anyone, not just Dunstan, were to buy something and it is the color of your hair or a kiss or whatever, or the memories before you were three... If Una can decide the price, how does Cell benefit from that? And so that did not really mesh all that well together. Mm. I know we're not supposed to think about this, but hey, this is a fucking no. apple of truth. This is what we do. We hyper-focus on all the little things. No, I think though, I think that because she has been tricked to serve Cell, so she has this responsibility within her or like the part of the enslavement is that she cannot not serve her even though Sal's not around she still has to behave a certain not behave certain way but the outcome she can and essentially do anything against Sal so she's pretty much safe but she is that. doing things against Sal in a certain way I only like I honestly only read it as she is basically following what Cell tells her as much as she has to to not get punished. I mean, the, that's the question. Like, is it to not get punished or is it not to have like a magical, you know, compulsion or something? Yeah. The way I read her through the entire movie, especially when she like uh, the scene with Michelle Pfeiffer, when she transforms the bird back to Una, Una puts the chair there or the stool and then anything else. Like she sounds so fed up with Cell. Like she so she gets to to be sassy she gets to decide the price of things so she seems to be very free in her behavior but she is following the orders so as to not trigger cell yeah. into punishing her you know yeah yeah well so, yeah yeah i mean these are little details that are because then when it's really important to... she steals the fucking uh cart Carriage. and everything yeah. yeah so like she obviously can act out and then like cell is like oh, i'm gonna hurt you so bad like okay no you won't but you're you're dead <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I can't wait to get to that scene. Yes. But okay, yeah, sorry. So then we, then Dunstan comes back to Wall and the narrator tells us the boy comes back home or Dunstan come back, comes back home and he was hoping his adventure would soon be forgotten. And I'm like, why though? Why? Why you want to forget this? Like, are you because unsure? Now, no, because now he's... He has to deal with a normal life. Like, he knows that he can't have a happily ever after with her Aww. because he can't free her. Oh, that's actually, like, 
way sadder than I thought. I was like, is he just trying to forget about her because it's like, uh, this was because fun. Because the sex but... was bad? <laughs> no. Yeah, uh... maybe. I don't know. No, no I, I honestly understood it in a way because he tried to help her and mm-hmm. he couldn't free because her. Because like, he's he a instantly, good person. He instantly tried to cut the chain mm-hmm. and to help her. And then he helped her escape in her brain, basically, to pleasure for a yeah. few minutes, however long it took. Uh-huh, you know, um, I mean, he was a virgin, probably. Yeah, maybe it was more than one round. You never know. Uh, young men do have a certain stamina, um, and so I, I understood it as he is too good a person to actively kill Cell, which is the only way to free her. Mm-hmm. And so he can't do anything, and he also can't really like move his life over to the village behind wall. And so yeah. the only thing he can do is forget everything about her as to not make himself sad. Yeah, that's that's actually a really nice explanation. And that actually plays really well into then uh, having Tristan baby yeah, uh, show up at his doorstep because yeah. that was another thing that clearly Una has chosen a very good person because a lot of men would not accept a child, especially when they're on their own. It, it basically means that Especially in these days when we're like in what, 18th and 1800s or something? Probably. I mean, later on we have the Ish. florin and I think a florin was an actual coin yeah. currency. Yeah, I, I think it is written down so... somewhere that it's like the 1800s-ish. So essentially we have a man, a single man that technically hasn't really dated anybody and suddenly he has a baby. So that mm. is the end of his life, essentially. Well, not of really because... Youth, of so yeah. to say. So he doesn't really have like a good opportunity to court a young girl now because he has a baby at home and nobody also, knows how Also, he's in love so, with Una. Come on, well, this is still a fairy tale, basically. So. Well, yes, yes. But if we disregard Una now completely because he knows that he can never be with her. He, he would have a really... hard time finding a mom yeah, for Tristan. Yeah, exactly. So I feel like it just speaks very, very highly of his character to actually go through with it and it also speaks to his love for Una even though they spent one night together. The bar for a man is so low. But yes, I I have to agree with you. So a florin is a British coin and it was minted from 1849 till 1970. Ah. Yeah. So somewhere in that range no, this is yes. basically set. Mid-1900s to mid-end-ish 20th century is where this is set and I'm with you. Yeah, a single dad in those times. Very unusual. And he's stepping it up. But of course, I need to comment on this because it was fucking hilarious to me. The face of the guard when he hands over the basket with mm-hmm. Duncan, uh, with Tristan in it, mm-hmm. he really doesn't like Duncan. Yeah, like, because he's is... pissed off at him. Yeah, like, but nine months later, he is still he... angry at he him. He holds a grudge 18 years later still. Yeah, so the face of that old dude, I absolutely fucking loved it. And Perfection. At six minutes, 51 seconds, we get our title draw. Because Stardust is written in the sky with starlight. And that concludes our previously Previously on on Stardust. I warn you, dear listeners, this was scene one of 41 for me. (laughs) I think that like... It, there was a lot to say at the beginning because there's like, it, I think that's like the biggest, yeah. It is one of the biggest. That is yeah. correct. Yes. Yeah. My next scene is called How Tristan Thorne Becomes a Man. 18 years later. 18 years later. <laughs> it's not what I called it. And we're going to start me off with a complaint because welcome to my fucking life. 
Have you ever tried to watch a romantic movie when romance is the most unrelatable thing to you? Probably not. Welcome to my fucking life. I'm sure that I have managed to watch a movie that I could completely not relate with any characters on the oh, show. Oh yeah, but like the, the basic principle of yeah. romance is yeah. something that I don't understand. And so obviously there is two layers to this. A, I don't understand it. And B, I'm very salty. Or actually I used to be very salty about not understanding it. So for a boy to become a man, he must have someone's love. It's basically the premise of this movie if I want to be a dick about it. And of course, in this moment, I am being a dick about it. This is not the premise of the movie. Yes, I know. And so I was like, nee. <laughs> It is absolutely not the premise of the movie. The love is the byproduct. He can only fall in love with Evain because he becomes a man. It's not because that he, he needs to. Yeah, up. because it's not like he needs to fall in love with her in order to become a man. So carefully. Yes, but the way this is, the oh, he becomes a man and then we see he's in love with someone. It's like, la, 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 la. I was like, uh. yeah, no, I understand where you're coming from. When I from. say I was, I mean back when I watched this for the first time. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. No, right. I was completely in love with it. And I remember when I first watched this movie, I never realized how actually hilarious it is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it took a I while. also, back then, I didn't know who Henry Cavill was. So I didn't have the extra layer of hate for Humphrey. 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 So did I get it right? Humphrey and Tristan were schoolmates. Because Humphrey yes. references Tristan being shit at fencing even in class yes and everything else so they are the same age more or less yeah which I find hilarious because I only realized this now I always thought Humphrey was several years older than Tristan he reads to me as the classic slightly older boy that is like more traveled because like Victoria says he's going all the way to Ipswich Um, he has the fucking moustache that is terrible he seems to have more money so everything on him read to me as a bit more grown up. The way he dresses and everything, you know? To be fair, he clearly is not somebody who made his money. Oh, no, no. So. He comes from money. Yeah, this is daddy's money. Yeah. Yeah. So it just kind of backs up a couple of other things. Like, the, for example, the way he clothes and yep. the way he looks down on people and is clearly a bully. Tristan is so dorky and Humphrey is so put together. Mm. I read Humphrey as distinctively older than Tristan. And only this time around I was like, wait, they're classmates. They are, certainly. They are the same age. <laughs> Unlike the actors, well, I mean, the actors, like Henry is like two years older than Ben, Mm. I believe. And, oh, sorry, Ben, Charlie. Because Charlie and Ben are the same age, basically. I think that there's like less than a year between them. And I think the actress for Una also is like three or four years older than Charlie Cox. Like everyone is pretty close-ish in age, which is nice. Like I like it when there's no creepy age differences. Not visual anyway. Yeah. We'll get to that. Now... Tristan, Tristan, a little self-esteem would be nice. Self-respect, in my opinion, is what he's missing. Uh, okay, yeah, true. Actually, he does He does have some self-esteem because he actually goes out and, and like, tries it. Yeah. But, yeah, self-respect, better word. Thank you. Yes. God. Yeah, absolutely. Also, his taste in women is atrocious. 
But I think he's just a romantic. He is imagining Victoria being much better human than she actually is because he idolizes her because of her beauty. But her sisters are just as beautiful. Apparently one of the sisters is actually one of Sting's daughters, like Sting the musician. Oh. So yeah, super random. I never thought of them as sisters, actually. They are sisters and they all look the fucking same. I never actually looked at them properly. They're all blonde. They're all skinny. They're all very fair of face. And I'm going to make myself very unliked now. Evain also looks like that. She, he has he, a type. He the only difference a... between Evain and Victoria is the fucking character, which is obviously substance, is much more yeah. important. But like visually, Tristan has a fucking type. I mean, yes, but his type is gorgeous blonde woman. So gorgeous blonde fair woman. Yeah. In fairness, he has never met any non- any other. <laughs> Yeah, Good except point. for Bernard. <laughs> he literally lives in the land of, of beautiful blonde women, so, you know. Oh my god. Yeah, okay, so obviously he has a type of the only kind of women he's ever seen is blonde, fair, skinny women. Okay, yeah. yes. Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, oh well. Perfect. And then we have the next day when Victoria comes into the shop. Uh, before we have that, we have the dead son interaction with how did it go? Oh, great. As much as I love Dunstan as a supportive dad, hmm. there is a difference for me between being supportive and enabling an obsession. And I understand it on a certain level because basically telling Tristan that Victoria is a vapid cunt would not <laughs> help. Because yeah. then Tristan probably would just shut down and not share with his father. So yeah. I understand it. But dad seems to be a bit too much of a cheerleader for Tristan making a fucking fool out of himself. So I'm very torn on my parenting level skill for Dunstan, I have to say. I really like it. And this is something that only comes after Tristan gets fired. Because... First of all, I'm sorry, I completely understand he got fired because Victoria didn't even fucking pay for her groceries. <laughs> she just collects it, gets him to collect it and like gets him to carry it to her house. And she's just like, well, let's go. Yeah. So completely well-founded. Oh yeah, now that he's being fired, I offense. absolutely have no issue there. But then we have the conversation with his dad and I have to say, this is something that I really, really love about Dunstan because he is supportive but he also I feel like he is supportive of Tristan he's not necessarily supportive of this obsession he wants Tristan to know that him being different makes him better and worthy of anything and this kind of support in like I kind of feel like I had this from my own childhood as well because my parents were a lot like that mm. where they really tried to support our individuality and they really wanted us to be who we were regardless of you know where would we fit in the world because they knew that if we are true to ourselves we will find our place in the world and they didn't care where it was they didn't have any expectations of like you're gonna be a doctor you know <laughs> they may have had hopes but they would have never tried to push those hopes on us if they weren't what we wanted which is something that made me a person I am today also the awareness of parents that think 
things that seem unconquerable as a child or as a teenager tend to be things that once you are a grown-up get much needed perspective mm. and very, very different scale. And so, yeah, kids are fucking assholes and kids can be incredibly cruel. But I do appreciate the statement with the every normal person that I remember growing up nowadays is completely unremarkable. And if you're happy with an unremarkable life, that is good. Like, I'm not shaming anyone who's like, no, I'm actually happy not being anything different or remarkable anything. But Tristan very obviously wants to be more. Mm -hmm. And if you're, if you're aspiring to be more, then the last thing you want to be is normal or like everyone else. So... I'm with you there that this is a good supportive dad and I'm happy that your parents were close to Dunstan as yeah. a dad. The shop scene, I'm actually happy if we just skip over because I hate <laughs> everything about it. Like seriously, yeah, it's one of the terrible. things every rewatch that I... Yeah, it's bad. I hate Victoria so much. Well, the thing... We're going to we're gonna talk about Victoria. Actually, no, we're going to talk about Victoria now because now obviously Tristan, he's not giving up. So he's once again trying... And he understands Victoria on a certain level because he is aware of her materialistic streak. So he goes all out with the picnic and the champagne and everything. So despite him being like, oh no, she's so much better than everybody thinks she is, he is aware of how to get her, at yeah. least for a short time. He seems to be way less awkward with women than his father was, let's put it that way. As long as there is just Victoria. Like, I think the gaggle of sisters behind Victoria and Humphrey made it more awkward for him. Yes. In the one-on-one -on -one interaction, he is actually pretty decent. Yes. And he has this whole, like, rant about love and stuff. It's just, like, it for a romantic person, he is very much idealist and, and he yeah. is... He is really true to that. And I love that. I just want to make sure because I, obviously Victoria is the one we're not supposed to be sympathizing with. But Victoria never once is misleading about what her priorities are. She yeah. is very clear that she is only going to marry Humphrey because he's going to Ipswich to get her a ring. And she's also very clear that she is interested more in Humphrey because he has more money than a shop boy. Mm -hmm. So while I'm not aligning my values with her values, I don't want to hate too much on Victoria because, well, those are the things that she is interested in. And she gives Tristan a very clear, you have until Humphrey shows up to convince me you are more. You have yeah. more. And that is See, fair. On one hand, yes, that is fair. Like the fact that she is so open about all of these things, you're right. However, yes, I hate... <laughs> No, that's not also true because I believe he Humphrey is know. very much, first of all, he doesn't really know. But second of all, he is exactly the same like her. Like it comes back at the oh very no. end of the movie. We're going to talk about that. Did you see the we're, wink? Yeah, yeah. We're going we're gonna to get to that end, uh -huh. end of the movie. If you kind of circle back to when uh, Tristan comes back to Victoria to give her the stardust, mm -hmm. he says, you were made for each other. And they kind of were because their priorities fit well with each other which is something that he is too immature to see right now. He is so obsessed with the idea of Victoria that he yes. doesn't realize that that's not what he wants in life. Because Victoria 
regardless of how much I hate that about the people or like how much that's not my preferred way of people, she is extremely small-minded. She probably yeah. never even thought of crossing the wall because it's no. just not something they you you would do. And it's something that I've written down here and then the, like yeah. they would two minutes later it's fit like... together. They would never fit well yeah. together, ever. She doesn't have the imagination. She doesn't have the uh, potential to, to seek adventure. Or the interest. Or the interest. And that's completely fine. As as you were saying, it's absolutely fine if this is what makes you happy. Yeah. It's okay. But uh, that just means that it's never going to fit well with somebody who has the need to go out there and explore and do experience new things, which Tristan clearly has because I mean, it's he wants to cross blood. oceans. Exactly. He wants to cross oceans. He wants to cross continents. He wants to cross the wall. Yeah. Which is the first thing we're going to be doing. But before we go there, we have the not happened kiss because the last thing Grizzly that she really bear. wants to get her is her is to get polar her bear. the head of a polar bear. It is. No, it's a fucking hilarious. I loved it. The narrator once again chimes in here and he calls this a humiliation. And honestly, I think this scene was so much less bad than the more public humiliation in front of Victoria's window that I'm not with the narrator. Like, this was not a humiliation. I mean, to him, probably it kind of was. But this he actually fucked up himself. Yeah, exactly. He was so close to getting what he thought he wanted so it's more and humiliating then, if you fuck it up yourself and not yes someone yeah else. because it's your personal failure it's not like somebody mm. else was there to, to take it away from him i don't humiliate easy so huh. yeah think about that all right we go to what i called the king's final act the, the kinky final act the kinky final said. act what no you the said kings. the kinks the kings i know i know but yeah I'm sorry if the word king comes out of your mouth. That my yeah. How do you know someone is into BDSM? They will tell you. Um, <laughs> it's true. We're worse than vegans. Yeah. <laughs> what? It's true. Wow. Wow. Also, remember when we decided that acts is the plural of having sex? So the king's final act <laughs> is what I called this because this is the final act. That the <gasps> king of Stormfront? Uh, what is it? <laughs> <laughs> it's Stormhold. Oh, Stormhold, not Stormfront. Sorry, I have Stormfront on my shirt, actually. So Yeah, different franchise. Different franchise. Okay, before we go into the scene, when we did the live watch, mm-hmm. I mentioned the whole Primus, Secundus, Tertius, uh, Romans, they're not the only one. So... Let's do this proper. The prince's names all refer back to their place in the family. Primus, firstborn, secundus, secondborn, tertius, tertiary, and so on. Likewise, Una, the princess, firstborn daughter. IMDb claims the tradition comes from a Latin, as some Romans called their children after the order of their birth, though usually as a nickname, only sometimes being a given name, especially with daughters. That is not actually correct, or rather it is not as simple. And I found an amazing Reddit thread that goes into a lot of detail. I'm not going to go through all this detail here. I included the link for that in my notes. Because it is not just the order of when they were born. It was more uh, when they were born as in season in the year, month. And it is correct. So Augustus. (gasps) Well, no, that's the other way around. (laughs) 
you do not see the other way around, right? No, actually. Okay, so lots of things, but especially it was more with the the order is the second name and the month, for example, would be the first name. So there's a lot of stuff in there. Click on the link if you're interested. And I wanted to include the Romans weren't alone when it comes to naming their children after birth months and birth order and all of that. I have included another link with some insight for Japanese naming traditions. Mm-hmm. And because I could have done an entire devil's on the details on just this, but I mm-hmm. really wanted to do the names of the witches. So do your own fucking rating. I provided all the sources. <laughs> Yeah, so I just wanted to get this out of the way. Yay. Great. Yeah, right. I love that. I think I think so are you saying that if Una would have had a sister, younger sister, her name would be Dua? Yeah. And then Tria and Quattro. For mine. I think Tersha. I think Tersha. Tersha. Oh the... yeah, Tersha. Tersha is a is an actual real name. Yeah. <laughs> So is June, by the way, as it goes with the naming for months. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Or I mean, April. Uh-huh. <gasps> oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm like, Aprila. No, April. Yeah, no, I did, I did literally miss wow. April. <laughs> okay. Um, wow. We are hey. in the king's chambers and some of our princes come in. And once again, IMDb did my freeze frame work for me. And once again, I just made sure that it's correct and it is. Because all the princes wear clothing with pattern spelling out their number in Roman numerals. (laughs) And those numerals are composed by smaller Arabic numerals. So the numbers are making up the numbers are spelling out the numbers. It's completely ridiculous. The fucking costume department on this movie was wild. So good. I love it so much. Furthermore, and I only noticed this myself the last time we watched this movie, the buttons on Septimus's West have the Arabic number seven on them. Mm-hmm. Everything on Septimus is seven. Yeah, yeah, but he is the only one who has the explicit Arabic big readable sevens. Mm-hmm. The other siblings all have the Roman readable numbers that are made up of smaller numbers that are really not easy to spot. So, yeah. yay. <laughs> Love that. So, speaking of Septimus. Oh, so he's we... the best. So, first of all, we have Secundus come in. We have this I hate all... him. I am clearly the only choice to take the crown, whatever. And he is so, it feels he's extremely self-obsessed, which becomes, becometh his... Becometh uh, his downfall. <laughs> down, downfall. <laughs> so uh, the king presents Secundus to the rest of them and Septimus, I fucking love Septimus, takes the chance immediately pushes him out of the window. And I'm going to say this now, just so we get it out of the way, because Mark Strong is an actor who loves to play a good villain. Or I don't know if he loves it, but like Mark Strong is an actor who plays a kick-ass villain. He Mm. is absolutely incredible. I have seen him in so many different things as a villain. And do you know what's funny? Because you've also seen Mark Strong in Kick-Ass and Kicksman. Ha-ha! <laughs> ah, he's so good in Kingsman. <laughs> no, but like, seriously, it's like the yeah, group I mean, it, of people in this movie. It makes sense. There yeah, were connections sense. formed. Also, let's face it, English produced or Britain produced movies have 10 actors that are recycled everywhere. But I have to say this role, this part, oh. Septimus, is my personal favorite of Mark Strong I have ever seen him in. It's I just love him in this so much because he is funny, he is cunning, he is 
shockingly brave, even stupidly brave and I love at one the, point. I love the long hair on him. Ah, oh, it's so good. Yeah. Do you think it was his hair or was it a wig? It's a wig. It's a wig. It's a wig. It's yeah, a wig. it's a fucking is, wig, woman. Is he is incredible? Yeah. Yeah. No, he's he's absolutely lovely. Um, no, no, no. He's not absolutely. <laughs> he's absolutely perfect at Septimus, but yes. he is the most perfect when he kills Secundus. <laughs> <laughs> because I hated Secundus. Secundus is such an arrogant dick. He is so much better when he's dead. <laughs> yes, yes, with the smooshed face, oh, like and the hair. Damn, it's, damn. I love that we get the ghosts. Ghosts. The ghosts are one of ghosts my favorite characters. Great. Yeah. Ghosts are always great. The fact that we get all the ghosts of all the different princes. That the way they looked when they died. I was trying to guess which were the deaths of the previous, of the first three. Oh, I wrote them all down. Ooh, so we've got one axe to the head. Yeah, we have one is burnt, one is frozen, one axe to the head, one fell down. Like, everyone dies by a different method. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, like, the first three, we don't actually get to see on screen. No, but it's very obvious. Like, one has all the the burn shit in his face, one is literally an icicle. Oh, I was wondering what that was, because it felt like ashes at times. And I was like, no, he's literally This is throwing me off. Okay, good. And he is—he was murdered by Secundus, by the way. Yeah, which is the first thing that we learn. The actor of Secundus is Rupert Everett, and he is the voice of Mr. Fox in Chronicles of Narnia. So he yeah. rejoined with Ben Barnes later on. I had not realized this, and also yep. he is a fucking voice of Prince Charming and Shrek. Yeah, I actually did Google him because he felt really familiar and I could not figure out where I know him from. This is, I, he's the worst, but he's perfect for fucking Prince Charming. I, dis, I despise him. <laughs> incredible. Okay, uh, so Secundus is a fucking idiot. Great. Yes. But now we have three bravas left. Primus, Tertius and Septimus. And the dad could not be more disappointed in his sons. <laughs> And as bad as a human as this father is, I kind of get it because like, he lived his life by example. We later get this beautiful story that he basically wrote every living being, including a camel. So like, he led by example. He, tr- he killed all his siblings long before his father was even feeling weak. And he also knows his children really, really well. And I do wonder, is it Septimus's fault that Una got tricked by a witch and taken out of the equation? Because he didn't have to kill her. I don't think it is. Because why would he... I don't think he had the need to get rid of her. The thing is, she does exactly the one thing that is the danger that she poses, which is she created a male heir. Yeah, but how could she create a male heir if she's enslaved or she is gone? Like, the question is, does he know where she is? And if he does know, he probably was the cause. But so if I do he wonder, doesn't know... Like, it, it makes me wonder because he is cunning enough that hmm. he might simply remove one of the players and he has no need to kill her and probably his father would frown upon it if he killed her because clearly he loves una the most yeah i mean who wouldn't with those sons who wouldn't love una the most true true (laughs) i mean i feel like the king and septimus are actually the closest in character to each other They're very similar. I mean, seriously, for the king, Primus must be a fucking disappointment because he would be the first benevolent king of Stormhold. All the other brothers that we've seen are fucking idiots. Mm-hmm. Like, seriously. And then there's Septimus, who is like the evilest of the evils. 
So you have five fucking idiots, one nice guy, and Primus literally is the nice guy with all the bad ways it means. Uh-huh. And then you have Septimus, who at least is like great at being bad. And who then has you have a spine. Una, who is smart and pretty and cunning and resilient and everything. So, I mean, it's a very easy choice which one of those is your favorite child, right? Yeah, I would also <laughs> choose Una. <laughs> If we all I, choose well, Una. Well, well, I might. Maybe I would choose Septimus. Uh, Just for the yeah. fun of it, you know. I think that he would be a whole lot of fun to have, hang around. As long as you, you stay alive. I think at some point he would simply stab his dad. So, yeah, no, I'm going to stick with Una. So, yeah. Hmm. Now, where were we? Oh, yeah, everything's coming together. So we get... The king the, is dying, uh, basically. <laughs> king is dying. As a last act in his magical kingdom, he uh, goes into this weird thing where he takes out a red ruby. Well, all rubies are red. He, where he takes he out takes a ruby. He takes off the necklace. The entire necklace thingy flies yeah. into the sky. And I don't understand it. Like, what? <laughs> How? I mean, it makes sense because if you look at a fairy tale from, from the purpose of just what? looking at a fairy tale itself, uh, often a lot of kind of a last act of king or a ruler or whatever, somebody who already is living in a magical world can be a magical act. So essentially him creating this, not even a curse, but like this prophecy, self-fulfilling weird prophecy, whatever he does with the ruby, makes complete sense it in a fairytale setting. basically. Essentially. But I feel like it's not just coming from him. It's like a... Faith kind of a thing. So faith. Fate, not faith. Yeah. Faith, faith, magic brought together, creating this thing, which is essentially in the end going to bring prosperity and happiness to everyone because it is a fairy tale. Yes. Am I watching this movie with the mindset this is a fairy tale, not everything needs to be logic? No. no. I mean, Why? It makes, because I'm me. <laughs> it makes logical sense if you look at it within a rule oh. of a fairy tale. Do you mean to say, don't overthink it? It makes <laughs> sense. <sighs> Enchantment making king makes sense. It seems to be like a theme with all the game and stuff we have covered so far because we had the same happening and good omens at a few uh, points. Yeah. No, you are, of course, you are absolutely right. This is literally a fairy tale. This is like Brother Grimm, Brothers mm-hmm. Grimm fairy tale. Yeah. It is a bit gritty. It has some magic. It has love. It has beauty. It has coincidences. It has fate. It has everything. So yeah, this is a literal fairy tale. I'm saying I'm fucking nitpicking about things. This is why you love me. I know. We're having fun. So essentially, rock skyrockets into the sky, takes down a star. And we have a shooting star, which is the name of the next scene for me. Shooting star. And it's so beautiful. It's ginormous. I love, absolutely adore the way this is made. Especially for the year. Like, most of the effects, apart from the two-headed elephant, are actually (laughs) really good. Like, the only time I felt a uncanny valley, this feels wrong moment was in the first scene at the market with the two-headed elephant. Yeah, everything Everything else else is so good. Really, Especially, like, later on, the magic fighting and everything. It's like, wow. Okay. Yeah, it's 2006. When did Lord of the Rings come out? Uh, Around the same time, pretty sure. Yeah, right. Uh, Yeah, pretty sure. Lots of movies. 
Vacuum series. Because this was much. 2007. Okay, so so Lord of the Rings came out in 2001. Yeah, Orlando Bloom was already hype, hype, hype. So he must already yeah. have been Legolas. And Pirates of the Caribbean was already out. So so if you look at the movies that predated this by a few years, yes, you have a lot of like effects. We haven't really gone too much to CGI or like a good CGI yet. So uh, you have, obviously, if you look at Lord of the Rings, the last movie comes out in 2003. You get your olifants there and everything. But you can also tell that they're not great CGI Budget. Yet. Also budget. Like a lot of Rings movies had ginormous budgets. And that's that was the next thing. The budget was absolutely incredible. It was on a completely different scale. And then the fact that for some reason, and I don't understand really why, Stardust decided to put the two-headed elephant at the beginning. That is clearly very different style of effect than anything else in the movie because everything else looks incredible while this is the one thing that stands out to be like but why so that's a, that's a little interesting nugget there but yeah you're right uh, there is a lot of magic and i believe there is a lot of practical effects as well that are absolutely amazing including then the drowning scene with septimus is mwah, so good the shooting star as I named the scene, Only shoot the blazes sky. across the sky. And as is going to be kind of a theme, I'm going to get my complaint out of the way before we talk about the scene. I know we're supposed to find it endearing that Tristan is one not to give up. But given today's culture, I find it extremely creepy and obnoxious that he doesn't take the no. The thing is, she doesn't necessarily say no. Yes, she does. Does she? Does she actually say, this is never gonna happen? Yeah, she literally said in the scene before that this is never gonna work. And then he makes her drunk. No, the thing, she says this is never gonna, yeah, Yeah. this is never gonna work because you don't give me what I want. It was a condition. Meanly, she says no, then he makes her drunk. And then he extracts a promise from her that if he brings her a shiny rock, she will take him instead. I mean, yes. That is a bit of concern that I actually noted that, like, I'm not sure if she's not going to regret that promise in the morning. I know we're supposed to find it endearing and everything because he is someone, like, he's going to trudge on. He's really going to go for what he wants. And, like, his ability to power through is something that is going to help him later on. But in 2007, this was cute. In 2023, it's really not. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, if you look at this, I feel like there is a, a little bit more to it than just like her saying no. Because the thing is that she always, it's never a hard no. And this is why he keeps being obsessed with her, because it's never a hard no. Debatable. It's never, it's never just no. This is never going to happen. I will marry Humphrey. It's always, well, of course I would say yes to Humphrey because he's going all the way to Ipswich. Yeah, he's already drunk at that point. I'm not going to blame Victoria for speaking bullshit while she's drunk. Yes, but like she has spoken enough bullshit all the times before that. No, she's taking advantage of Tristan when she's sober. That is totally fine. But she has made very clear that she's not interested in him and he should just fucking let it go. Like I said, 2007, this was cute. 2023, Really not. I just don't think it's that high and dry. Like cut and dry. I, I just, I just don't think it's just that. But that's that's just the dear w- patrons. My... Let us know what you think. <laughs> no, it's it's like a perspective thing, and like I just don't think I feel full on feel that Victoria is a player. 
And she is keeping her options open regardless of what she says. She's keeping her options open because if Tristan turns out being a better scorer financially than Humphrey, yeah. she will choose Tristan. And she wants to keep that option open. So to me, from her, it was never a hard no. It was always, it's going to be a no as long as Humphrey has more money or you know like in that sense like it's always going to be no unless you give me more i'm not and that negating that yeah well those two things can exist at the same time <laughs> that's all i'm saying that's all i'm saying those two are not the only people watching the shooting star obviously because we now get introduced to lamia and she is so so happy that a star is falling and I know she's the bad guy of this movie like her and Septimus are our baddies but I feel with Lamia so many times in this movie I love her so much like I have an easier time relating to her than to Yvain actually so I love Lamia <laughs> yeah listen that's a perspective but with this with meeting Lamia and Epusa and Mormo we have met all of our characters because yes. just before we see Alamia we actually see Yvain oh, yeah, in right. the middle of the crater so now we have met everybody that is players. pertinent to the story at yeah. any point I mean of course except the sky pirates because come on he would not turn into the suave competent gentleman without Captain fucking Shakespeare obviously huh? Huh? but yeah so like for the for the kind of a general introduction the mains are here we have met every important character for this story to start yes. happening and unfold in front of us so we learn for the first time that a heart of a star can be used by the witches to keep young. We witness Lamia taking the rest of the heart and we get Babylon candles introduced. The Babylon. We get Babylon candles introduced. Babylon. And of course, because we have one Babylon candle later in the next scene, we're going to see that one as well. I have one thing I want to talk about here. While we have like the shooting scar, we see Yvain in the crater, we see the witches, we see Yvain again, we go back to the witches. Like it's a back and forth, back and forth here. A, the crater Yvain made is ginormous. She's a big fucking star. I kind of wonder how the two of them later on actually get out of the crater because the walls are fucking high. So that is just like one random note. I was like, how? Okay, whatever. And obviously, why is Yvain in the shape of a woman? Are stars gendered? Yes. Yes, they are. Because, first of all, they talk about each other and they call each other sisters. So are all stars female? Yes. Okay. That is my assumption until Tristan gets up there. I have nothing to oppose that, so... Yeah. It makes sense within this context because we have repeatedly heard the reference of sisters and stuff like that. And Yvain does refer to herself as a woman. Yeah, I, I know that Yvain is a woman, but it was just like... Yeah. If if Yvain is a woman, does she happen to appear in the shape of a woman? Or are all stars gendered? Are there boy stars and girl stars? Like You, you know, that, so that was the... No, but I can live with... Because we only get proof and reference to female stars. Yes. And I can live with the assumption that until shown otherwise, all stars are female. Yeah. So... And I smell a spin-off. <laughs> <laughs> I love the witches. So, like I said, I relate to Lamia the most out of basically all the female characters. I love that we have a evil boy group and an evil girl group. Because mm -hmm. basically you have the princess as the evil man and you have the witches as the even evil women. Um, so like it's very nice and very like distributed and everything. 
Of course, in my Devils in the Details, I talk about Lamia, Mormo, and Impusa, which is the three names of those three witches. So if you want to know more, be a believer and listen to the completely not overly long bonus material. It's not overly long. As much as I love the three of them and as much as I think that Lamia is by far the smartest of the three of them, they say that they knew they were out of a Babylon candle. Why did they not get another one in the last 200 years? They had 200 years time to find another fucking Babylon candle. I thought the same thing. I thought to myself, if they actually get Evane's heart and get young, all of them, they better get their fucking Babylon candle to be ready for next time. Yeah. Like, you because have clearly to prepare. Yeah, I think that it's arrogance mostly on their side because they feel like they don't really need to think about it because they're all powerful because they have all the power in the world, but then they don't. But on the other hand, they are so smart because did you notice that the box that contains the rest of the previous star is wrapped by three different colored bands that only the three of them together can unwrap. So they obviously know each other well enough and are smart enough to protect each other from each other despite working together and everything. So it's like, girls, come on. Really? It's it's the weird like love slash hate sibling thing, yeah. Yeah. It's also it, so many siblings. It's ridiculous. Like the brothers ooh. and the sisters and the vein and her star sisters. Like yeah. poor Tristan. He's literally the only fucking child. Yeah. The, He's the, the one to only save child. the yeah. thorn bloodline. Yeah. Now we get to see Tristan trying to get through the hole in the wall. Wait. No, before we see that, we see Michelle Pfeiffer turning young and pretty again. Ah, And I cannot gloss over this because A, I love the practical makeup effects that they have on the witches. It looks fucking amazing. So good. But her transformation back to being beautiful and then her just dropping the clothing and looking at herself in the mirror and feeling how beautiful she is. Like, Michelle Mm -hmm. Pfeiffer is absolutely gorgeous and damn does she know it. Like, hell yeah. (laughs) It's incredible. And I love the whole interaction between her and herself and the sisters and her because she's like looking at herself she turns around and she takes down the rope and she looks at the two of them like look at me bitches I am fucking hot stuff and then she starts looking at herself and the the sisters both have like I roll I roll fuck you I roll get over yourself bitch Yes, as is completely understandable. And also, I love that she literally takes the time to admire herself naked in the mirror. Because if I look like that, I also want that. I mean, that's why you relate to her the most. (laughs) (laughs) As if you wouldn't. Come on. Yes, I would. See? Okay. So now, please do move us over to Tristan. (laughs) So now we finally get to see another thorn boy trying to get... (laughs) Through the hole in the wall. Uh, but sounds so wrong. And, <laughs> I know. That's why I said it that way. Uh, <laughs> but the guard is there. And I love the fact that he first yes. thinks that it's Dunstan coming back. Because yeah. first of all, fuck yeah. They look so much alike. Especially in this movie. And it's I so it's well the hair. They're the same type. Yeah, of an the way actor. they move so is perfect. If, yeah, if you are in an acting business, you very quickly learn that if you get the role or the, if you get the part or not get the part or whatever you are getting chosen for, it doesn't necessarily always come down just to your talent mm-hmm. because it will come down to your type very often. And there is always going to be in the last round of any audition, there will always be multiples of each. 
Yeah. And they will be choosing from. So I can very easily see the casting directors of this movie having Charlie and Ben in the last round and like looking at them and then thinking to, to themselves, well, we could use one for Dunstan and the other one for Tristan. So now we have to just choose which one is going to go for what. Vaughn very much was like Charlie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yes, like you have obviously multiple people involved in that decision, but I ultimately the two of them has gotten through all these rounds of auditions for a reason and because they are the same type it works so perfectly especially in this scene when the guard is like oh little Dunstan boy you back and then obviously Tristan tries to do exactly the same thing his father did which does not fly this time unlike the guard who does fly apparently yeah like that is something I don't understand because this scene leads me to believe that the guard isn't human because there is There's no way, uh, I think uh, Dunstan says 94, 97 something, that a 90 something year old is that limber. (laughs) Just no. Yep, Yep. I agree. This scene leads me to believe that this guard is not human. But at the end of the movie, he basically does a rage quit because (laughs) all this funny business from the other side of the wall, like, no, 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 this is enough. Which again leads me to believe he's very human. So it's like. Mr. Gayman, what's up with this? Maybe the fact that he set his entire life next to a magical land has given him abilities. youth and abilities. Or not youth, but, you know, like youthfulness to, to his life. You know, prolonged his, bones his very life. springy. Also that. Yeah, actually, I can live with that. That is a, that is a good enough headcanon for me. I can live with that. <laughs> Yeah, so he basically beats up Tristan. He whoops his ass and Tristan goes back home and does something that I have already complained about when we did the life watch. Tristan puts a stake on his eye. And we talked about this during the life watch, so I actually went and researched this this time. Yes. There is not only no benefit to putting raw meat on your black eye, it actually is quite dangerous because raw meat carries bacteria and that close to your eye can actually cause very, very problematic infections. The reason why raw meat was used to be put on swelling is that raw meat was one of the things that were kept cool. And so you don't actually want the meat, you wanted the coldness. So nowadays, you would use a bag of fucking frozen peas. Please do not put raw meat anywhere near open wounds and especially your eyes. Thank you. And that is Lena with her tangent. Thank you very much for listening. And this is us for the day. It made me so upset. Like, seriously. Like, It's a waste of a fucking piece of meat. Eat that shit. Hey, the fact if you put it on your face doesn't necessarily mean that you can't eat it afterwards. Gross. This is the 1800s we're talking about. No, it's the this 1900s. Is probably it's 18 something. something. So. Yeah, 18. Yeah. So- no, it's the 19th century, but it's the 1800s. Oh, yeah, sorry. Yes, 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 yes. English brain. Sorry. It's the 1800s we're talking about here. They probably, the only thing they kept cold at that time was meat. So I think it's completely understandable. And especially if this movie is no. set in that time, it no. is historically accurate. Some might even say. I'm against it. Don't do it now. What I'm not against. Tristan is home. He's sitting there. And his dad learns what happens. And obviously Tristan is smart enough of a boy to realize that the guard said something really peculiar. And that means my dad has been over the wall. I need to know more. (laughs) I was being very funny at this point because I wrote down Dunstan is Bunstan as in busted. (laughs) Oh, wow. 
And so now, of course, we can have a debate. What is the right age to tell your son that yes, his mother, mother is probably very much alive and is actually enslaved by a witch on the other side of the wall and actually left a letter for him that his dad never read? So there could have been something like, oh, dear Tristan, when you turn 13, you need to come to my rescue. That's like, oopsie, sorry, too late. Like, I appreciate the fact that Dustin didn't read the letter, but it's also really, really stupid. So, <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, if this needed to be open at a certain date, I feel like Una would write that on the cover and say, open on my 13th birthday, Tristan. Yes, I get that. But still, it was like, okay, okay, okay. Also, for seriously, for the reminder of my notes, it's Duncan and not Dunstan in my notes. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I don't know why. Aww. On the one hand, I get it. Like you wait until your son is old enough. But like you said, this is the 1800s. You grew up quite early. So I feel like 18 is kind of late. It kind of is. But I feel like Tristan is a little sheltered kid because of his dad trying to yeah, get, like maybe raise yeah. him as good as possible, but also shield him from anything bad. Good point. I feel also that his timing it was never about keeping it away from Tristan it was always about Tristan needs to come and ask first and the moment he asks he shall receive the answer which makes sense but also again would it have been right to keep this knowledge from Tristan just because he never tried to venture across the wall and of course storytelling la 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 I get it all I'm just like saying I feel no, you know what I feel it's uh, more of a he will ask when he's ready. So when he wants to know, when the curiosity is there, he will ask. It's not like, you know, Una said, I'm going to need him to rescue me at some point. I know. It's more of like I will respect your boundaries and if you're not ready to learn this about your life, I will not push and try to put this burden on you because it is a little bit of a burden if you're not ready. To of know course. that your mother is enslaved in a magical land that you had no idea existed. Once you share the information, there is no way to unshare it. Like, I do get it as a struggle. It just, it didn't seem to me like uh, Dunstan was like waiting for this day to happen happily. It was more like, oopsie, okay, I actually kept something here for you. Yeah. But I, it is very cute that he kept literally everything from 18 years ago. Like, the basket is still there and everything. Oh. So. Precious, 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 precious. I, I can't Pre say the word. Precious. Very precious. 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 Yes, precious. 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 I know precious. the problem with this word. Precious. Precious. Very precious, precious, precious. I love it. Precious boy. We read the letter mm -hmm. and we get a short scene where we see Una writing the letter. I don't know if you noticed this, but the handwriting of the actual actress is atrocious. <laughs> no, I did not notice it. The letter is written beautifully with exact spacing between very very clear straight lines mm -hmm. and the one line we see her writing is completely wobbly <laughs> and it's so very obviously not her handwriting on the rest of the letter I present to you the cart the wagon was the wagon was parked no. when she started writing no. and then no, it no, no, started no. going the letter we see that Tristan is reading is perfect hilarious so I was so, just like, it completely took me out of it. It was like, no, it does not match. Yeah. <laughs> does not compute. So yeah, that was just completely ridiculous to me. I'm sorry. Continuity error. Yeah. Reverse continuity error. And for the I last suppose. time, 
I will complain about the timing and the thought put into this by Dunstan because it is literally the most idiotic thing to be like, hey, so you just learned a bunch of new information and we're going to act on it immediately without you having any time to process. So here's the bubbling candle. Think of your mom who you've never met right after the emotional turmoil. We're going to light this and off you go. Like what? That entire thing is Tristan's idea. It's coming from and Tristan. And the dad goes along with it. He is still the yeah. father. I mean, yeah, he because be like, he wants her to experience adventure no, because let's he did pack experience. you a fucking bag with a fucking loaf of bread and maybe a bottle of water no and maybe a blanket there's no need for that because babylon candle will take him there immediately and his mom's gonna have to, this stuff for him his mom is a fucking slave to a fucking witch maybe bring he a fucking sword or a club he doesn't, he doesn't know that's still the case no, 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 no. Like sending off your fucking 18-year-old son who has literally no life experience without food, water, and equipment. No, this is bad parenting. And now I'm going to shut up about Dunstan being a well-meaning but failing father. Agree to disagree. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> it's about supporting your child in whatever they want to do because they have to figure out their way on their own. And if he wants to do it straight away, he wants to do it straight away. I don't think that necessarily Dunstan realized that the Babylon candle works the way it does because I don't think he's ever seen it or heard of it. So maybe he didn't realize this is going to be like this way. But, you know, let's leave this for now. And let's go back to Yvaine and her beautiful, perfect hair. So the dress Yvaine wears is amazing. Like, seriously, I love the material. It's like the shimmering, shiny, slinky perfection. Like, I really, really love the dress. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. It's very starry. Yes, it's perfect. So I'm, I'm very, very happy with that. Tristan crushing into her and going mother is absolutely hilarious, especially with later it on. It does give a new meaning to the word crush. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> Nice one. I'm going to let that one slide because that's actually really, really good. Oh. I had not realized that he is the one who fucks up her foot. Yep. So, yeah. Wait, is he? Because I yes. don't remember. Is she limping before he runs? She does not walk before he crushes into her. Okay. But she references it, actually. Yeah. So I had not realized before that... He's the reason why she can't really walk. Yeah. Yeah. And so it makes him even more of a dick when later on he makes her walk way faster than she should in the middle of the day with a fucking hurt ankle. I am with Yvain on a lot of levels because mm -hmm. this random dude literally just crushed into her, hurt her, and asked her to her super... Stupid questions. Yep. But on the other hand, I'm only going to say this once so I don't have to complain about this the rest of the movie. Yvain has watched humans and Earth her entire existence. She should know that most humans do not recognize a star. I mean, she should know a lot of things. Exactly. That she does not. This is my one time I'm going to complain about this because it is extremely fucking convenient what Yvain knows and what she doesn't and what she realizes when she realizes it. There's many, many moments of this, the naivete she has in the inn, the blind trust she has in the innkeeper, despite the fact that later on she literally tells Tristan that the only redeeming quality of humanity is love and everything else about humanity sucks because there's war and there's fighting and there's cheating and there's everything. There's literally no reason why Yvain should believe and trust in any living human creature. So yes, I get it. It makes sense on the storytelling level. It doesn't make sense within herself. With us then getting this out of the way now 
I did not have that much of an issue with this part. My big, <laughs> big, big, big issue is that we know that all the stars know of the fate of their sister before yeah. Yvain. How yeah. does Yvain not know? Yeah. That was my biggest point of contention. Everything else I can she live with. She must know that her sister who fell before her had her heart cut out. Yep. So she must be aware that this is a danger to her. At the very least, she must be aware that this is a danger to her. To another point, we get to see that happening and being told by the stars. So exactly. Tristan, when they sent the dream. When they sent the dream. And therefore... They clearly know the yeah. witches. How does she not recognize the witches is another level to this. But yeah. yes, let's get this out of the way now because that's a one point of contention when I'm like, mm, the only way uh, why? I made it work in my brain is basically the fall has knocked her brain loose. Yeah. Yeah. And only as she is recovering, she is actually remembering relevant parts. And as she is falling in love with Tristan, she is actually remembering the love part that she loved of humanity. And so basically she's only remembering the parts that she's being confronted with, which is when she is in danger. She remembers the danger part. When she is falling in love, she remembers the falling in love part. So, yeah. I can live with the fact that she probably is affected by the fall more than we realize especially at the beginning so yeah yeah that's that's the only explanation that i can kind of live with so but it's we're still gonna, a, we're gonna rest it bothersome. and we're not gonna complain about this anymore the last thing in the scene is of course the magic chain oh yeah and it's hilarious to me that this fucking magic chain is just as long as you fucking ever needed because Dunstan cut off a tiny portion of it mm -hmm. and now it's this several meters long thingy yeah and it gets longer when he ties her to the tree and stuff yeah it gets longer when he tugs on it exactly um sorry I had to um I love your face oh you're so done with me it also grows the third end when he ties her to the tree which yeah. is also like what you have never experienced that have you uh, no actually not I've seen a lot of weird shit but not that no but what I actually wanted to point out the effects for the chain are amazing like yes. I don't know if it's a practical effect or not or whatever but it looks great it, and actually the chain looks more like a star than Yvain does in this moment <laughs> <laughs> because it's so shimmery and this is where we cut because guess what this episode took forever or rather is taking forever enjoy the outro see you in two weeks